0: to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. Well, I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, charlatan. Are you a charlatan?
1: Are you misrepresenting yourself here somehow? I'm not, but as last episode proved, you wanted me to tie it into whatever we're talking about, and there are some
0: secrets, and many, many lies in this film. (laughs) That is true. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, which is Mike Lee's secrets and lies, featuring many of both of those things, as Jason just alluded to. It is domestic drama,
1: I guess we can call it. It gives you, you know, it's truth in advertising, Josh. You're not going to walk out of this thing saying, hey, they really weren't enough secrets. And uh,
0: I could have done with more lies. There were plenty of both of them. (laughs) It is, in fact. And it's also one of those movies where at a climactic moment, the character says the title of the movie, which is always. I wonder if it if that's in this case, because of Mike Lee's process, he just took the title from that monologue or whatnot. Yeah, it's quite possible. I don't know. So this is a movie that it has a great critical reputation. I mean, it was a highly acclaimed movie starting with its premiere at Cannes. It wasn't necessarily like a massive box office hit, but I, I, a movie like this isn't going to be a massive box office hit. It grossed uh, $13.4 million, although it was unclear to me whether that was that was domestic here in the US or worldwide. Um, so it may have it may have made a little more than that uh, worldwide, and not that may just be in the U.S. But I couldn't quite get the right figure on it. It did have a budget of four point five million, uh, which is a decent-sized budget for a small-scale movie like this, especially in nineteen ninety-six. So I mean, financially, it, it did okay, but it wasn't uh, a huge sensation. It was a limited release, but it was so acclaimed. In addition to the Palm d'Or and also a Best Actress award at Cannes for Brenda Blethyn. It was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director for Mike Lee, Best Actress for Brenda Bleden, Best Supporting Actress for Marianne Jean-Baptiste, and Best Original Screenplay, which is always interesting to me to see Mike Lee get nominated for his screenplay, because as as you were saying, his process essentially involves not having a screenplay.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I I think he deserves it because he's able to use a process of going deep into character and situation with his actors to such a point that they're able to create this uh, working piece of art that is, uh, as you said, one of the most critically acclaimed films of the year that, uh, yeah, he deserves a screenplay nod in my estimation.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily against it. And he's been nominated for for Oscars for screenplay on more than one occasion. And he certainly he crafts the whole structure of the movie, but it is just it's always interesting to me to see how those nominations work and that, you know, this movie probably didn't even really have a shooting script and that, you know, it was put together afterwards and and that he can be nominated for. But, yeah, the storytelling aspect, the structure aspect is all him. And, and that's that's pretty fantastic. Uh, it did not win any of those Oscars. Uh, however, but Brenda Blethyn did win the Golden Globe and the BAFTA for Best Actress. Uh, at the BAFTAs, it also won Best British Film—not Best Film Overall, but Best British Film—and uh, it won Best Original Screenplay. And it was n- nominated and won awards. I mean, it's a massive list for every critics yeah. group and small, uh, you know, awards, smaller awards show. But those those are the biggest, highest level awards. That uh, it was it was nominated for and won. It was certainly one of the awards favorites of 1996, all over the place in the various award shows.
1: Yeah, a few others: uh, Independent Spirit Award for Best Foreign Film, National Board of Review Best Film of the Year, the Goya Award for Best European Film. So yeah, I mean, and as we said, uh, this is an extremely strong year for movies and an extremely strong year for awards movies. So. For this to come out and and hit like it did shows you the caliber of film we're talking about here.
0: Yeah. And, and again, maybe it, it wasn't a tiny budget, but it was certainly a, a relatively low budget. And Mike Lee wasn't, I mean, he'd been working for a, a long time at this point, but he wasn't necessarily as known or as acclaimed, especially in the US uh, before this movie. And certainly all the actors uh, were not big movie stars or anything like that. So this movie really traveled far on its own you know on the merits of its quality and not necessarily some star power or some you know major filmmaker power and it was very very well reviewed it got uh, two thumbs up from ziskel and ebert and uh, roger ebert said moment after moment scene after scene secrets and lies unfolds with the fascination of eavesdropping we are waiting to see what these people will do next caught up in the fear and the hope that they will bring the whole fragile network of their lives crashing down in ruin when they prevail When common sense and good hearts win over lies and secrets, we feel almost as relieved as if it had happened to ourselves. And I mean, that's the big, a big thing about Mike Lee, as we're saying with his process of, of improvising and developing characters over these like workshops is that his, his characters feel very real and very multi-dimensional. Like we are just eavesdropping on real people. I love it, man.
1: I mean, whatever i'm not as acclaimed as mike lee as a filmmaker josh but uh no aren't you no but i and i don't work just from the um the grounds of only inspiration but uh of uh, uh improvisation but i do incorporate a lot of improvisation into my writing process and uh it's really exciting so for me it's really exciting to see a master do it at this incredibly high level man There is no safety net here other than you could say, like, yeah, we could do another take. But I mean, the emotional points that these characters have to get to, I don't know how many takes you could do like that.
0: Right. Yeah, it is is very. There's a lot of very intense emotional moments in this movie where and and, and the camera just doesn't look away from those. So the actors really have to, like, be on that whole time. Um, And I think it's interesting with related to the improv aspect of Mike Lee's filmmaking is that. We think of improvisation as something that's used mainly for comedy. Um, you know, someone like Judd Apatow is known for having so much improv in his films. But even though there's there's humorous aspects to this movie and to Mike Lee's movies, overall, his films are not comedies. And, uh, you know, I think he's one of the few directors who's known for using improv so heavily in creating, like, serious drama.
1: Yeah, he gets to some real truths that otherwise he might not have been able to get to. Um I don't know how he does it. Um, I mean, obviously it helps working with like the most talented, you know, group of British actors around. That doesn't hurt, but um, it, it's just uh, he's he's doing it at the highest level. He's doing it at the level that Christopher Guest is doing it at on in his in the best of his comedy films.
0: Yeah, in a very, very different mode. But I would say, yeah, Christopher Guest. I I was mentioning Apatow, but Guest is probably a better example of someone who just really builds his entire film around improvisation. So Destin Thompson in the Washington Post said, in Secrets and Lies, English filmmaker Mike Lee's deeply touching movie about family relationships and the ever-painful search for identity, he's talking about uh, some of these random characters in, the, in a photography studio, uh, these two figures are brought together only momentarily, but they're part of a richly woven tapestry of universal anguish. In this corner of middle-class England, the world is filled with bitter acrimony, painful secrets, and a vague sense of hopelessness. Secrets and Lies, which won the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival this year, reveals itself detail by searing detail. The movie is an extended, multi-layered revelation, and you don't get the full complex picture until the final scene. And yeah, it's, it's, it's in that first part, he's talking about all these scenes in uh, Timothy Spall's character who runs a photography studio and all of these kind of interesting uh range of people who come in for just a few minutes to to get their photo to get their photograph taken and we see them on screen. And even in those just like brief seconds of those throwaway characters, you get a sense of real life from them, I think.
1: I think it takes a, a big set of balls to put those in there. Cause you know, traditional screenplay or movie editing knowledge would be like you could do the whole story and not have any of these characters in there, right? And you have a tighter movie, but they really add to the uh, the scope of of Timothy's style, uh, his character, and then also just the overall slices of life that we're seeing.
0: Right, I think that's a big thing: is that you always get the sense, even if a character is on screen for just a tiny amount of time, that they have this whole inner life and this whole the whole life that they're living outside of what we see in the movie. Because yeah, the the actors have brought that through this long process of improvisation and that they're conveying that on screen even in those really brief moments.
1: A lot of those people in in the uh, photography scenes with Timothy Spall are regulars in this like Mike Lee group of players that he reuses in movies and, uh, you know, time and again. So everyone,
0: everyone comes uh, and brings their lunch to this one, Josh. They do. So a slightly critical... Uh, mostly positive, but, but bringing up a potentially interesting point. Uh, Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly said, In his cranky British way, Lee has made a feel-good soap opera. And watching the inspired performances of Timothy Spall, his bearded face an egg of sadness, and Brenda Bleden, who weeps and rasps and then weeps some more, her emotions burning right through her skin, we seem to be witnessing a ritual of redemption, life's secret losers dignified by their pain. In the end, though, it's the spectacle of races uniting idyllically, crossing lines of social habit, friendship, and even biology that lends secrets and lies its sentimental catharsis. The picture is a crowd pleaser, all right, but for all its appeal, a naggingly sanctimonious one. So he felt that that the sort of the race aspect of this movie was disingenuous, which I don't agree with, but I thought, you know, that's a point to potentially bring up.
1: Yeah, I don't agree with it either, especially now. But again, now it's twenty-four years later, right? So yeah. we've hopefully um progressed since then. Although as yeah. our recent conversation and of do the right thing had said, maybe we did not. Yeah. Um I I don't know, man. I think that that's the whole point, right? Like that this is a white single older woman who had a child and the and gave it up for adoption, never even knew who the child was. And the child is black. And I don't think the story is nearly as effective if we don't have that racial component here.
0: Right. No, I agree. I think the racial component works well. And I don't think this is a sanctimonious movie. I think this is a movie that underplays that aspect, that it it gets across the difficulties of the sort of interracial aspect of it without beating you over the head by it, without having a big speech about it, which is certainly not something that Mike Lee would do. So uh, I don't, again, I don't necessarily agree. I just thought you know, it was interesting to find a perspective that while he's overall positive on the movie, he has more reservations with it than I think a lot of other people did.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I agree with you, Josh. And I think um, giving credit to Lee and the characters as we come to find out who... tenses, or tense, as they like to call it in (laughs) British uh, parliaments. Um, You know, it's never like, wait a second, we're related and you're black. What you know, like it's they just accept that, like, wow, this is all just part of the package, and that there's so many other crazy elements to um, the the revelations that it's irrelevant in a way.
0: Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant because I think it's it's always there and the movie acknowledges that it's a, it's a key aspect of the story, but it's not like just constantly being talked about. It's not the only aspect of the story. So fair, I think that works well. That is a fair correction of my,
1: my parlance, Josh.
0: Yeah. Not, not not a correction, just a, a, you know, it's a a sort of different point of view. So had you ever, uh, had you ever seen this movie before this? Never. No. And I, I had
1: seen, like I said, I think 96, um, if 94 was like our big year of like indie movies, we're like, oh, we want to be, you know, filmmakers. 96 for me is probably still the best year for acclaim, award bait movies. And um, this is one that just kind of slipped under the radar for me. I knew about it,
0: obviously, but I had never seen it. How about yeah, you? I know I, I hadn't seen it either. I've seen other Mike Lee movies. Uh later Mike Lee movies, more recent ones, and I, which many of which I love, I think are fantastic movies. And part of the reason I hadn't seen this is because it's not really very uh, available, which is weird for a movie that was nominated for five Oscars, but we were able to watch it. It's now, or it has been on the Criterion channel streaming, but it isn't streaming anywhere else. It isn't available to rent. The DVD is out of print and has been out of print for years. So I don't know if there's rights issues or what it is, but for a movie that was such a big deal, in 1996, it's actually kind of hard to find, and I think especially when I had seen some of those other Mike Lee movies like Happy Go Lucky or Vera Drake, which I think are both just like absolutely amazing movies, and wanting to learn more about Mike Lee, it was hard to find this movie in order to watch it. Did you see it, Dave? No, I heard you guys talking about how hard to find it was, and I was like, I'm just not even going to try. Yeah, well, I'm not even good. gonna. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even gonna give you crap for this one because it was hard. <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's it's great that criterion has made it available now and hopefully it'll remain on there for a while but other than that it's it's been a it's been a bit of a a tough thing to find
1: yeah and uh they don't they don't sponsor us josh but i wish they would because (laughs) i am happy to plug the criterion channel that is an awesome piece of app-based uh platforming right there where you can basically go to film school and watch classic movie after classic movie through the decades.
0: Yeah, I know Criterion is is great and it's a, it's a great resource with tons of movies. And I think a lot of movies that also like this are maybe unavailable elsewhere that they're able to get the rights to. And maybe even if it's just for a limited time, but, you know, get those movies out to a wider audience. So yes, please contact us, Criterion, and uh, and sponsor yeah. our podcast. Uh, did you have any other uh, background info you wanted to mention on this one, Jason? I think you you hit most of the points. At um,
1: I mean, you know, you mentioned Ebert. 2009, he put it on his great movie list, and um, that's it. I I think you got most of the background here. You know, the main thing besides the acclaim is that his process is so different than everyone else's that um, it really shows you um, a craftsman at the height of
0: what he's able to do. That it does, and we'll talk more about that in a moment when we get to our general thoughts on Secrets and Lies. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about the Palme d'Or winner at the Cannes Film Festival, Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies. And just before the break, we're mentioning his process, which is unique. I mean, I feel like there's no other director who makes movies like Mike Lee does. I At least not that I'm aware of. I don't think so. I
1: mean, as best as I understand it, He, you know, meets with his actors, they kind of workshop these characters together, and then he only gives them the breadcrumbs of what they need for each scene. So you don't know the full story, you know a beginning point, and you know kind of the scene that you're doing, or maybe like an overall story of where the character is going, but you don't know... More than that is, am I missing anything to this process?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I was reading it, and I wasn't sure if that that definitely is true. Like for example, Brenda Bleden, you know, before she uh, encounters Marianne Jean Baptiste, because her character doesn't know that this this uh, baby that she gave up for adoption was black. She didn't even look at the baby before she, uh, you know, had before it was taken away. She doesn't either know. Brenda Bleden doesn't know who this actor is going to be and what she looks like and everything. But I feel like it was, I thought that is part of the rehearsal process that the improv mainly comes in terms of developing the story in that rehearsal process. And so by the time they get to shooting, they're still improvising dialogue. But I think the actors at that point do know what the story is.
1: Um, Yeah, well, like you just said with this Brenda Plevin kind of reveal where she knew she had a, daughter who was going to contact her, you know, but she had no idea it was going to be Marianne Jean-Baptiste, the black woman, you know, and she plays it as like, it's impossible. And then, you know, as, um, Hortense uh, Hortense gives her a few more details. Bledon's character, Cynthia has this like, holy shit moment where she's recalling her past. And, oh my goodness. Is that one of the emotionally just, It puts you one through the ringer, but two, it is so impressive. Like, yeah, man, I, I, uh, what a performance from her.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, Brenda Bleden really, I mean, she was the one who got most of the awards attention for this movie. And she certainly is just very powerful on screen. I mean, that character goes through so much. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, there's a lot of crying in this movie. Um, she's crying a lot, but, uh, I mean, we that, that scene where she and, uh, where Cynthia and Hortense, uh, first kind of encounter each other. And especially the scene where they they go for tea and that shot in a, in a single take, I think it's like yeah, seven, seven, seven minutes, minutes long. Yeah. And that's just a, such an intense, powerful scene. Uh, as these two characters are connecting and and you can see the emotions that Cynthia is going through where she's kind of in denial at first and she's like, this could not be possible. You could not be my daughter. And then she slowly realizes, wait, this is what happened and you are my daughter and this is sort of, I, I was misunderstanding what went on. She says, oh, I thought you had been born, you know, six weeks premature because she obviously thought the father was someone else. That's just a super powerful scene. and And more so, I think, because Again, the actors just have to. There's, there's no moment where they can pause or anything. You know, he's just got the camera straight on them and doesn't move it for that entire scene, and they have to really like convey it all just in that moment. It's really powerful.
1: And yeah, I mean, uh, Bledin that that's her quote unquote Oscar clip right there that you would submit, right? But you got to give uh, Marion Jean Baptiste so much credit in that scene also because uh, as Brethen as as Cynthia kind of like. Just explodes with uh, hysteria. She kind of maintains a poise and a focus that, had she also been crying, it would have just been a mass hysteria scene. You know,
0: right? There's a there's a good balance there, and that character. I mean, there, like I said, there's a lot of crying in this movie, but uh, Brenda Blethen is it's a big performance. I mean, that's not bad. That's kind of what the character is. But you know, she's she's always expressing her emotions outwardly, very strongly. And and Marianne Jean-Baptiste is doing it a lot more inwardly. And there are a lot of scenes where you see her just kind of like tearing up a little bit and you know that there's so much going on internally with uh, with Hortense, with that character, but she's playing it in a much different way. And I think that shows you also the contrast between who these are as people, that yeah. Hortense is, is more reserved. She's been brought up in this kind of middle-class environment. She has this respectable professional job as an optometrist. Uh, whereas Cynthia is this working-class woman who's used to being brash and she's used to people around her being loud and and talking over each other. And that's the kind of person that she is. And it really comes across because the actors know those characters so well.
1: Yeah, you're 100% right. And I also think um, without saying it, that also plays into the racial dynamics, you know, of a middle class black woman who has to kind of work a little harder in some ways to attain certain things in society. Whereas Brenda Blevin has all the white privilege that so many of us have, and, you know, emotionally, she could just be a wreck and, and no one will pay her none the wiser because of it. I was thinking, like, man, she had to be exhausted at the end of this role. <laughs> I, I would I would think, like, she, you know, the, part of that $4.5 million budget should have been to send her away to, like, a retreat just to rehabilitate her mind and soul, Brenda Bleden, with all that she put herself through.
0: Yeah, it is a very emotionally wrenching performance, and it it seems like there's there's just so much energy going into it um, that uh, that definitely comes across there. And I think we should mention, I mean the. There, that that's the main strand of the story. And that's what this movie is known for as being about this black woman who seeks out her birth uh, mother. And it, it turns out to be this white working class woman, but there's a whole tapestry of characters in this movie. Timothy Spall who plays Cynthia's brother, who is also, he's kind of got this more respectable middle-class existence. He's got this photography studio business that's going very well. And his, his wife played by Phyllis Logan is yeah, uh, you know, it, it, at first she comes off like she's kind of a nag, almost like they don't they don't get along. But then you see all the pain that she's dealing with as well, and the the all the the effort that they put in to try to have a child, and that she can't because she has these, you know, severe menstrual cramps that we we see her dealing with uh, throughout the movie. So there's a whole other. I mean, you could make a movie that's just about them and their marriage that would be probably just as fascinating as this more heightened adoption story.
1: Yeah. So Cynthia. Her younger brother, Morris, is, um, as you said, Timothy Spall, who's really, really excellent also. I mean, all the acting's excellent in this movie. And basically, Morris and Monica were very close to Cynthia's daughter, Roxanne, when she was a kid. And they, because of the relationship between Monica and Cynthia, it seems like the families have had a falling out. But they miss Roxanne. She's about to turn 21. They want to reconnect. They invite her over and they invite cynthia over for this barbecue to celebrate and um you know everything leading up to this is kind of like what um uh, you know cynthia and hortense discovering their relationship cynthia and morris kind of treading water with their relationship and then you know roxanne and cynthia who also have a very volatile relationship in that um theme that we've that we saw in uh In season two with uh, Margo at the wedding of a manipulative mother who always has to, you know, kind of uh, put put down her child to kind of, you know, keep her dominance, I would say. So there is a lot of, yeah,
0: just uh, uh, fuckery going on here, Josh. Yeah, but I think these characters are not as as despicable as the characters in Margot at the wedding. I mean, you watch that movie and you get the impression that these are all really terrible people who don't understand how terrible they are to each other. But this movie, I feel like the characters are much more likable or much more well-intentioned. And yes, they they can treat each other poorly, especially the relationship between Cynthia and Roxanne. But one thing I liked about this movie, and, and I think as Ebert who kind of mentions it in his review, is that things actually turn out well, that once the secrets and lies come to light and people are able to talk about things openly and honestly, they're more emotionally healthy at the end of this movie than they were at the beginning, which is sort of the opposite of what happens in something like Margot at the Wedding.
1: Right. And, and also in probably uh, British stereotypes because they're all stuffed up and don't deal with anything, right? But um, I agree with you. Um, I did think Cynthia was rather unlikable at the beginning, but the more... We learned about her and the more she opened up to Hortense, like the more I liked her. And um, I love the idea of like, hey, you can't run away from the pain. You have to go through it. You have to attack it head on. And then um, once the explosion's over, you can kind of rebuild. And we see them doing that. And uh, yeah, I think everything was earned. There was nothing unearned in this movie.
0: Right. And it's not a short movie. It's, you know, two hours and 20 minutes or so. And I think that's part of. The way that those things are earned, that we have such a real sense of these characters that that Lee has put all these building blocks together before we get to those big emotional explosions, that it really feels genuine that these characters have grown and that they've been able to connect with each other on a better level by the time the movie ends, because we understand where that they were coming from.
1: It takes you through the ringer like we talked about. And like you had mentioned, you're getting all these kind of customers coming into the uh, photography studio that, uh, Morris, uh, runs and you're, you're getting just little glimpses of a woman who is in a car accident and now her face is disfigured and, you know, uh, she feels her life is ruined or a couple who's about to be married and they're fighting over what, you know, their poses in the pictures. And you're like, this marriage is doomed before <laughs> it even started. Right. So, yeah, um, a lot of little things like that, just, really, really work and and heighten this movie.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's scenes, like you were saying before, I think there's scenes in this movie where Uh, like a screenwriting professor or somebody would say, oh, cut that out, that's not important. But it is important because it builds this sense of reality to the characters. I mean, there's a great scene where the, the guy who used to own the photography studio, who's clearly fallen on serious hard times, shows up and is talking to Morris, and it's this weird tension about what is he gonna do and what is he gonna say, and they're able to diffuse that and kind of put him on his way. And it doesn't really have bearing on the larger story, but it gives you... A real sense of who Morris is as a person, and the way he's diplomatic, and you know what's kind of been going on in his life before the point at which we see him in the movie.
1: That scene is so awesome, dude! Like I, I have it in my notes. That's Ron Cook, who we talked about, I think, in the Hot Fuzz episode. Oh, who's wow! Playing okay. that Stuart character, and yeah, falling on hard times. Maybe he's drunk, and he um, he thinks Morris has sold out the artistic aspect of his. Uh, studio meanwhile he he's he's telling Morris he should have been hiring out people to do weddings so he could have made more money you know so he's like an artist who's also sold out and doesn't appreciate the way that Morris is sold out perhaps I don't know but um he he says you know with everything that's gone wrong I, I'm still a photographer I still have that eye you can't take that away and he's like and, and I mean this is such a roundabout way and there's such a fight between those two and he's basically just saying like if you can help me, I will help. Like I need, I need help and I can still shoot photography and I'm willing to shoot for you now, you know? So, uh, a very powerful sequence, very powerful scene there. And Monica, his wife is there to witness this. And and also another minor, minor character, Jane Morris's assistant, who got to give credit to that actress also, man, she's in the background of all these powerful explosions, the reveal of Hortense being, uh, announced to the family as the illegitimate daughter of Cynthia. And she's really does a great job of acting in all of this stuff.
0: Yeah. And you feel so bad for her in that whole final big climactic confrontation at the at the barbecue because she's the only one who's not really a member of the family. And she's just been invited along for this nice afternoon. And she's got to be like, you know, subject to all of these serious emotional breakdowns. And, and that is a tough thing to play just sitting in the background. But she does a very good job of it.
1: She's definitely in the moment and in, um, yeah, just totally immersed in what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think another like uh, sort of similar to that scene with the the photographer. Uh, the scene earlier in the movie with Leslie Manville, who is a someone who's in tons of Mike Lee movies uh, and plays the social worker that Hortense goes to initially to, to get the information about her birth parents. She is so good. And that's another character where we never see her again, but just the way that she interacts with Hortense, you know, offers her candy and sort of asks her these little background uh, questions about her before giving her the packet of information. Like you really get a sense of, who that person is, and how many of these meetings that she's had to go through, and she knows exactly what to say and what people's responses are gonna be. And of course, she tells Hortense, like, don't, don't try to find the your, your parent on your own, like, come to us, which Hortense uh, ignores that advice. But I just really thought Leslie Manville was great in that one scene, even though you never see her again.
1: They're all working at such a high level. Like, we're kinda, I don't wanna repeat it, but like, everyone brings everything to this thing. And that is a credit to the, uh, class of actors that Mike Lee works with and also a credit to Mike Lee and how he's able to direct actors.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one thing I also wanted to bring up is that he's so known for that process and he's known for directing actors. I mean, that's like his thing, but visually this movie is, is very well constructed also. I mean, there's those long takes that we're mentioning that the, the tea scene between, uh, Cynthia and Hortense, but also the barbecue where he, in another really long take where he sets the camera in the one empty chair, like behind the one empty chair where Timothy Spall's character would theoretically be sitting, but he's not because he's up using the barbecue and whatever. And we see all of the people kind of bustling around it. I mean, that's a really well-blocked scene. Like everyone is in exactly the right place to kind of talk to each other and talk over each other. Uh, also the, the scene where, uh, Cynthia and Hortense first find each other outside the subway station. And he shoots mm. it kind of from like across the street, almost in this voyeuristic way. And we see cars blocking the, the camera at various times. I mean, those are very conscious choices visually that enhance the storytelling.
1: You're right. I think upon reflection, I got to give that a little more credit because it's like a lot of the time, like you're saying, you they put the camera down and let the scene play out. But the where they put the camera and how they let those scenes play out are so important to this. So, um yeah, it's it's it technically lives up to um the story that's being told. Yeah, I agree. Is there anything that you felt like didn't work about this movie? I don't think so. I think, you know, in the Ebert review where he's talking about like each scene reveals a different thing, right? And it keeps going and you're enjoying more and it just keeps on like that i really felt like that like i told you after i had watched it it was two hours and 20 minutes but it didn't feel like two hours and 20 minutes
0: yeah i i agree with you there i think i don't think the length is a problem uh, and and as we we're saying, I th- I don't think Owen Gleiberman's criticism about the uh, the racial aspect is is an issue as well. I think that that works for me. The story and and I one of those reviews mentioned that that it's sort of like if you just talk about the basic beats of the plot, it is very soap opera y. And I felt like on on that level, it, there were some times, especially in Brenda Bleden's performance, because she's it's such a big performance that it did feel a little overwrought to me in comparison. Also, I guess to some of the other Mike Lee movies that are. A a more understated, the ones that I've seen. So, I mean, I, it, it's not really, like, I, it's not my favorite of his films. Um, I didn't love it as much as I've loved some of his other movies, but, you know, that would be my my only reservation about it is that it's it's maybe a little soap operay at times.
1: Sweetheart, why are you saying that, sweetheart? You know, I can't say anything <laughs> about that, sweetheart. Sweetheart, you just got to go on and be you, sweetheart, okay? Don't call here anymore, sweetheart. That's my Brenda Blood and it's not very good.
0: <laughs> no, it's not. But she does say that a lot. And and again, I think that's, it's, it's you know, it's something about the character that that's kind of a, a thing that she does as a person. But I think some of that in the performance can make the movie seem a little, a little overwrought at times. I don't know if you.
1: If I don't know. I think a lot of like, you know, I watch a good amount of British TV, Josh, you yes. know, just to let the listeners know i like british tv yeah. i like australian tv some tv from new england i'd like to get in on a chinese tv or a, or a korean tv if i could sure there's a lot of it i'm a globalist when it comes to tv okay okay but one of the things i like about british tv is uh, sometimes you get those nice juicy buildups and reveals and uh, i guess this kind of had that for me so Um, how about the fact that they didn't give us the one reveal that we wanted the
0: whole time? The reveal of who, uh, Hortense's father is. Yes. Yeah, it was weird. You know, this is actually, there were a couple moments in the movie where I thought it was implying something. And then I was like, maybe I'm wrong about that. And that was one of the moments where, so at the end of the movie, uh, Cynthia finally tells her other daughter, Roxanne, who her father is, who she had never known. And she says he was this American medical student and that he was a nice guy, but then she woke up one day and he was gone. And Hortense says, was my father a nice guy? And Cynthia just kind of crumbles. And I wondered, especially... Also given her revelation in that earlier scene where she realizes, oh, she was wrong about the dates and who she thought the father was. I wondered if it was trying to imply that that her, uh, that her Hortense's father had raped her, but I wasn't sure if that was just something in my imagination.
1: It wasn't your imagination. That was an implication I took from it, that there was some horrible situation um, and that's um, how she had a mixed race baby um, uh, because... Whoever it was that ha- had intercourse with her, this was not a consensual, happy situation.
0: Okay, yeah. So I, I definitely felt that that was what it was saying, and and I think that works for the movie because again, you know, after we after that happens, we see that there's actually this nice, peaceful relationship among Roxanne and Hortense and Cynthia, so that despite the sort of uh, unpleasant origins of of Hortense's birth, they can all. Find a, a nice middle ground and get along well. Um, the other scene that I thought was implying something that I just think I was completely wrong about was when uh, when Morris goes to visit uh, Cynthia and uh, they're they're kind of reminiscing about their father and they're in the the room uh, that she's kept all just as it was before their father died and uh, she's kind of holding on to him and wanting wanting him to comfort her. And they're talking a bit about Roxanne, who he's obviously always like had a soft spot for, and he and Monica have both helped Roxanne. And I was thinking at the time that it was sort of implying that there was some kind of incestuous relationship there between the brother and sister, and maybe even that it was going to go that it turns out that Morris is Roxanne's real father. And obviously none of that happened. So I think I just was misunderstanding that scene.
1: Yeah, I think you misunderstood that one too. Um, I do think that uh, Cynthia is a controlling character and she wants the relationships to be all on her terms. So whatever mind game she was trying to play with him there affectionately or otherwise was nothing more than that. But, um, yeah, I didn't get that. I didn't get that at all.
0: Yeah. So, so um, and I'm, I'm glad that that, that I was wrong as I was watching that scene, I thought, Oh God, is that, is that the direction this movie is going into? I mean, that would really be a ridiculous soap opera twist and I don't think that it would have been pulled off. So I'm, I'm glad I, I that think I was wrong
1: yeah I think I can see where you could get that from, but I think it's more of like Morris and uh Monica probably had to take care of Roxanne a lot because one um Cynthia didn't have resources and two you know she was uh not the most responsible person right so right. May- maybe that's where it was that that was where that's where that was the kind of line that that um wasn't said but the implication could have been.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's definitely that implication that she resents them having taken care of her daughter when she maybe wasn't able. And and Roxanne loves them and is is affectionate towards them where she's more sort of resentful and antagonistic with Cynthia. And I think that all does come across. uh, I just, you know, maybe was seeing things that weren't there, Uh, which isn't. Yeah, that's my fault.
1: No, that's okay. I mean, how many times have I misinterpreted something? I'm sure you've been like, no, dude. But, um, you know, what about when um, they are over at Morris and Monica's and Cynthia lays it on pretty thick with like when Monica's giving them the tour and she's just like, oh, you spend money on this and you spend money on this. Like she really tries to dig her claws in. And I thought maybe that was a little much, but. Uh, Who am I to say if Mike Lee and Brenda Bleden were all for it, then who am I to say otherwise?
0: Yeah, I do. I do agree that maybe those class resentments are portrayed in a slightly heavy handed way at certain moments during that, like that house tour where Cynthia has this clear resentment for the fact that she's got this working class existence and her brother has managed to do well for himself and has pulled himself up into this upper middle class uh, place, and especially that she resents Monica, uh, his wife. And, and I think part of that, it, it goes along with what we were talking about before, about she resents that Roxanne maybe loves them or uh, respects them more than she respects Cynthia. So it's all bound up. And I thought it was interesting that while she clearly resents the middle class uh, excess of uh, of Morris and Monica, she admires it in Hortense because Hortense obviously also is has done well for herself, you know, makes money and she has this nice apartment. And uh, and Cynthia is kind of bragging about that, like, oh yeah, she has her own flat and she owns it and all this stuff. So she sees that as positive. And so I think that's an interesting window into her character in a way as well, because it shows that. You know the the way she views this daughter versus the way she views the brother that she felt like she had the responsibility for and had to sort of raise uh, when they were children after their mother died.
1: So uh, I agree with you. I mean, she definitely feels like Hortense dodged a bullet by not having to be her daughter and everything, and she is happy that she was given a much better life uh, than she would have had um, had she had Cynthia kept her. Um, I the only other point I wanted to make is to me that was the turning point where I really started going from disliking to liking Cynthia was seeing her relationship with Hortense grow and bloom and you see this other side of the character and a much more caring and open and even some carefree side to her also so I thought that was nice you know it gave that character um, uh, a few more dimensions to yeah play she with.
0: really blossoms when you know at first she's like. In denial and she doesn't even want to talk to this person and she hangs up the phone, but once she opens up herself to being willing to have a relationship with Hortense, it seems to soften her as a character and bring out another side of her that uh, is much more likable. And I think Brenda Bleden conveys all of that and that sort of complexity that she still has these other aspects to her character, but it shows us another side of her there. So uh, I agree that that is a nice turning point in the movie. So should we give this one a rating out of uh, five secrets and or lies?
1: We should give it a rating out of secrets and or lies, but are they going to be secrets and lies or secrets or lies?
0: I Well, that was why I said and or, you know, either way it's, uh, you know, we can't because if it's both, then maybe it has to be 10 instead of five.
1: Yeah. Four, four. Well, anyway, you slice it. It's four for me. Yeah. I think originally I probably had it at three and a half, but upon further reflection, it's four. And that extra half is for the mastery of the craft um, and storytelling.
0: Yeah, I still I think I'm going to stick with three and a half. Um, It's not, like I said, my favorite of his work, but I think it is a really strong movie. And uh, and I definitely liked it and it, it was powerful. But there's maybe other movies where I feel like his whole approach comes together a little better, but I definitely liked it quite a bit.
1: Yeah, well, this one, this one definitely want, made me want to see more
0: of his movies. So, and and you should, and that is a perfect segue to talking about the legacy of Secrets and Lies, which we will do when we come right back. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about the Palm Dor winner from the Cannes Film Festival. Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies. And uh, as we're just saying uh, right before the break, Mike Lee has gone on to make some, in my mind, even better movies. And I think part of the legacy of this because it got so many Oscar nominations and it got so much attention, was elevating Mike Lee to like this major figure where any movie that he makes is a big awards contender. Uh, Many of his later movies have been nominated for numerous Oscars. Uh, Personally, I I love Vera Drake with Imelda Staunton as an abortion provider in the 1950s. I really love uh, Happy-Go-Lucky with Sally Hawkins. That's probably my favorite movie of his. Um, And I like Mr. Turner a lot as well, his biopic on JMW Turner, which stars uh, Timothy Spall uh, from this movie. So uh, have you seen other Mike Lee films, Jason? I I haven't, man. A blind spot for me here. I have to
1: admit it. Um, well, Josh, I, I do have good news for you, though. Yes, please. Can just can the Can Film Festival just called you? Just won their Palm Dork.
0: Oh, you've been <laughs> you've been sitting on that one for the whole episode, have you not? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Uh, but oh, well, no, looks, I should looks... see more Mike Lee
1: movies. That's that's the point I'm trying
0: to. You make. should. No, so, you should. And I would recommend, especially Happy Go Lucky, which is you know uh, a much lighter film, but also has that great character detail to it. And of course, one other thing that Mike Lee is known for is working with the same uh, group of actors over and over. As we mentioned, there are a lot of the little cameos in the photography studio are actors who've worked with him on multiple occasions. Uh, Timothy Spall is someone that he worked with again and again. And uh, I mentioned Mr. Turner, which got Timothy Spall an, uh, an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. And he's fantastic in that, in a very different kind of role than he plays here in Secrets and Lies, playing uh, J.M.W. Turner, the... Um, the painter. Uh, I also want to mention another like acting wise, um, Leslie Manville, who works with Mike Lee a lot. She's best known, however, for not a Mike Lee film, but for her uh, Oscar nominated performance in Phantom Thread, which I think, you know, she was working for decades. And that was finally a thing that got her that wider, uh, wider acclaim, which I like that movie. Are you a fan of Phantom Thread, Jason?
1: Still haven't seen it.
0: All right. Well, we're just going through things that Jason hasn't seen. Usually I've
1: seen most of the things
0: but uh admittedly some things I haven't seen Josh. Some things you haven't seen that's a that's a horrible admission to make. Um but I want to uh
1: tell you one thing that I thought I thought this was influential on. Have yeah. You, here's something I have seen Josh. Okay, yeah. Have you have either of you ever seen the limited series National Treasure? No, not the Nicolas Cage movies. The British little limited series National Treasure? I have not
0: seen them. No. Nope.
1: Okay, they're super acclaimed. Um, there are four episodes. I think you can find them both on Hulu. The first one is about a um, famous comedic actor who is being accused of, um, like, I would say, rape, molestation, all this stuff, and he's fighting to prove that he's innocent. And there's all these questions if he is innocent or not, and it, it plays out really well. And the second's about... An adopted black girl who gets murdered, you know. Oh. Um, and it's um the writer is uh Jack, what's his name? You know his name, Jack Thorne. Very good writer. I think he's an amazing writer. So I thought this was a very clear link between the influence of Mike Lee's kind of movies and stories on Jack Thorne. And um, I would recommend uh National Treasure, not the Nicolas Cage movies.
0: I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I mean, I think Mike Lee, as much as this movie, you know, brought him to wider attention, especially in the US, he's kind of, he's like an institution in the UK. And so I'm sure, and he's been working, he started out in in TV movies uh, in like the seventies. And, you know, so he's been working steadily for almost 50 years now. And I'm sure he's got a massive influence on a whole generation of filmmakers and TV creators in the UK. I'm sure that's not the only example of, of Mike Lee influenced uh, TV series. Yeah, you're you're right, and uh, that's just the example I wanted to give. Right? No, it's a good one, and I I definitely that's something I should check out. Um, Acting wise, I also want to mention Marianne Jean Baptiste, and this was a big breakthrough for her. She does a lot of American TV now, which is weird. She was on uh, Blind Spot and a few others. You know, she plays like uh, kind of authority figures and stuff like that. So she didn't she didn't go on to become a superstar, but she certainly uh, had a steady career that came out of working on this movie. And she's someone who did not. Uh, act in any more Mike Lee movies after this, but had a a strong career. And I personally, I think this is another thing, Jason, that you probably haven't seen, but I remember Phyllis Logan, who plays Monica in this movie as Mrs. Hughes, the head housekeeper on Downton Abbey. And she looks very different in this movie, but as soon as she opened her mouth and started speaking, she has this very distinctive voice. And I was like, oh my God, it's Mrs. Hughes. (laughs) So people I think know her. She's much more widely known for for Downton Abbey which is is kind of an iconic thing at this point.
1: She should do a national treasure movie with Nicolas Cage.
0: <laughs> that would certainly be something. Um so uh yeah that's about it on the on the legacy from from me. Uh any other points you wanted to bring up or people involved in this movie and what they've done since?
1: No, I think you hit on most of it. Uh these are all actors who are, you know, great and worth worth watching. So, uh, I'm excited to see more of their work now that uh, you have given me um, many choices to choose from, Josh.
0: Yes, yes, I have. I definitely, like I said, I would recommend those. And I should see more Mike Lee movies. I haven't seen anything pre-Secrets and Lies. Um, but, you know, as far as his later work goes, I would really recommend Happy-Go-Lucky and, uh, and Vera Drake. Those movies are fantastic. I've seen Vera Drake, by the way. Um, oh, I'm one, a, one ahead of Jason. So what can I yeah. say? Yeah, did you like Vera Drake? It was very good, Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, for the most part, as you guys know, Every episode, I've seen so many different things and uh, I'm bringing, you know, little gems like the National Treasure limited series to the table. But yeah, you caught me. You caught me this week. There's a there's a lot of British films i need to catch up on no, okay, that's okay dave i, think I admit it, it that's my than, secret it and it's that's, not a lie it's not a lie yes
0: thank you that was i was more pointing out that dave who who often doesn't see the things that we've talked about had seen something so more more points to dave right. you, Jason. <laughs> but that's okay mm. we'll uh we'll we'll forgive your blind spot on mike lee and uh and we'll move on so no
1: the best the best thing i can say is that like this movie made me want to go watch
0: more of his stuff like that's great yeah, that is great, and it's that's that's a great thing to have when you see a movie and you discover a whole new world of of other movies that are now open to you. That's I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So that is secrets and lies, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. I'm at Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and uh, Instagram.
1: I'm at uh, Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter and go for Jason. Dot .com in the um uh, running for best website ever uh, still we're at awesomemovieyear.com, movie awesome movie year on Facebook
0: and Instagram awesome movie pod on Twitter i am at joshbellhateseverything.com and joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. So, Jason, what do we have
1: for our next episode? Well, Josh, we have the documentary episode of 1996. And honestly, it could be the documentary episode of a couple other years too, because it is the first in the trilogy of the Paradise Lost series. And it is influential, important, riveting, and difficult to
0: watch. And there are many secrets and lies in there. That is a very apt characterization of that movie. So tune in next time for Paradise Lost, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
1: And all points west.